Hackers attack systems that are not patched. You need protection, but virtual patching isn't working. That's why you go patchless. Topia analyzes, prioritizes, and remediates vulnerabilities before they're exploited. Even the zero days, all from one interface. Security gets better memory defense to complement endpoint strategy while improving overall vulnerability management and compliance. Adopt a hacker's mindset, eliminate vulnerability. Get your 30-day free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash vicarious. Sophisticated attackers are targeting credentials to escalate privileges. TiVo Networks provides an innovative solution that finds, cleans, and monitors exposed credentials to reduce attack surfaces. Additionally, the solution alerts when attackers try accessing Active Directory objects while hiding data and derailing them with disinformation. Organizations can go one step further and hide real credentials among deceptive lures that lead attackers to decoys for recording TTPs and forensic evidence. Find out more at securityweekly.com forward slash Ativo Networks and sign up for a free trial. NetSparker, the developers of a comprehensive automated web security platform that includes web vulnerability scanning, assessment, and management. NetSparker's desktop and cloud-based security solutions employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities and provides a proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Welcome back. Security Weekly in partnership with the Cyber Risk Alliance is excited to present Security Weekly Unlocked on December 10th, 2020. The inaugural edition of Security Weekly Unlocked is also celebrating Security Weekly's 15-year anniversary and will feature talks from Ron and Cindy Gula, Kevin Finisterre, Vivek Ramachandran, and many more. The agenda is live, so you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash unlock and register for this free event. This segment is sponsored by Eclipsium. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Eclipsium. And joining us this week from Eclipsium is a principal cyber uh, strategist, Scott Shefferman. Scott is a mission-driven 20-plus year cybersecurity industry veteran with a strong reputation for effective leadership, exceptional public speaking, candid thought leadership, and the proven ability to shape and shift industry outlook. Battle-hardened from years of incident response and cyber consulting and having served as the technical lead and final security risk determination for the Navy Certification Authority, we welcome Scott. Nice to have you. Wow. Hey, thanks for having me. It's quite an honor on this show. 15 years. Congratulations. That's amazing. Well, thank you very much, Scott. <laughs> um, I, I want to dig into the, the firmware problems uh, that we're going to talk about and, and lots of other really interesting things. But first, how did you get your start in information security? Wow. That goes back to about 96 uh, building PCs um, while I was working on a sales job, but uh, graduated with a philosophy major. Uh, long story short, I got fired from that sales job, didn't make it, but I knew how to build PCs. Uh, my dental hygienist said you should go work for international networking services. My <laughs> husband works there. And so I kicked that career off in 97. Uh, I did dumpster diving kind of security assessments till about 2000, well, till 9-11 happened. And then I uh, decided to hack the planet and get at the bad guys. But Afghanistan only had about 11 IP addresses at the time. So I gave up oh. doing that. Uh, I went to work for Booz Allen Hamilton, supporting everything from missions missions out of Egypt to um, to to the Navy for about 15 years and started that kind of DoD career. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I, I got to make a comment, Paul, first of all. Please do. Damn it, you didn't introduce me. Hi, I'm Joff. I'm oh, here. Uh, hey, Joff is here. <laughs> I, you know what? I introduced you to Scott before we started the segment, and I forgot to say Joff has joined us. So, Joff, thank you for joining us this evening. Yeah, yeah. Second, um, your bio introduction, um, I, I, I immediately thought, and, and I've got Marvel brain on the head right now because I've been watching the movie series. You, you're literally like the Captain America of InfoSec. So um, nothing but love and respect, man. <laughs> well put, John. Well put. Appreciate that. The vibe's a little, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, we, we like it. Scott, we, we talk a lot about uh, hacking firmware, embedded systems, and IoT, as we call it today. And I think what's interesting was your perspective on the foundation of what we do in technology in general and how that's being abstracted away, largely, but it's still there and very important. If you could elaborate on that point to get us started. Yeah, I love how you said abstracted away. I love that phrase. So, yeah, I mean, I, I so the last seven years I've been doing traditional endpoint, antivirus, uh, AI-based stuff, EDR, uh, IR teams, et cetera, right? So coming to Eclipsium has been uh, and continues to be an eye-opener because it's it's kind of re-taught me where I started, you know, in 97, building 
motherboards from the ground up to build gaming rigs, it's reminded me, it's brought me back to that kind of substrate, that foundational layer of, of compute. Uh, and the more you dive into it, you know, now having whatever a couple decades of industry experience and kind of revisiting that landscape is, is really phenomenal because that's that's the that's the bedrock of all compute. And when I say all compute, I, I mean all the things. It's it's it doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether it's you know cloud containerization, uh, all, all the migrations happening there, VDI environments, um, anything to do with your entire operating system, of course, that that resides above firmware and hardware. All of it relies on the trust and a lot of assumptions, uh, and, and, and indeed the, the, the checks and counterchecks that that things like Secure Boot and other things are meant to bring to the table. But what you find is the more you go down that rabbit hole and, and understand and explore that space, the more you realize that it's just like above the operating you know, operating system and above. So, um, as we as an industry, to to kind of answer your question, we've been kind of architecting upwards. We especially the last three or four years, mm. everything I've been involved with, for example, has been building AI in the cloud to build a model, for example, that shrinks down to an algorithm that runs on an endpoint, so we can build intelligence to make decisions faster. Kind of where the action is, um, or we're, we're we're doing better at figuring out how to detect actors living off the land, as as we know, the last three or four years and. Um, you know, doing things to secure Windows, like Windows themselves have gotten really, really Microsoft themselves have got really, really good at understanding the operating system, right, and defending it. Um, debatable, but but you know, fair statement uh, to you know, and it is a debatable statement. But underneath all that, we have the same problems. We have all the same root problems and development problems, supply chain problems, open source problems, um, uh, password, you know, default passwords, uh, buggy sessions, if you will, with be interfacing between chips on, on the motherboard. There's all sorts of things that go wrong and do go wrong. And so as we've built up to get smart as an industry, the, the, uh, you know, the attackers have started to go down. And the reason is, is because our whole security stack is also built operating system and above largely, right? And as a result, your time as an attacker, your dwell time, which, you know, when I used to speak at Fire, I would say, you know, dwell time's gone from 454 days down to like 180. And everybody's like happy about 180 day dwell time, which is ludicrous if we're just being honest. Uh, you know, attackers could do much worse than that in minutes or hours these days. All right. So um, as, as we've put more pressure on the attacker to move faster with things like EDR and predictive AI and, 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 and integrations and we're soaring across different, you know, integrations, et cetera. Uh, the attackers realize I need still need more time to accomplish my objectives, whether it's a long-term espionage, whether it's trying to ransom a larger portion of the real estate of the environment you land in, uh, whatever it is, you're trying to figure out how to buy yourself more time. So why not fly underneath the radar, persist indefinitely, survive reboots, survive even new hard drive replacements, uh, and also have what you might generally call omnipotence, right? Like there's, it's not a whole lot you can't do once you have that power because you own the operating system at that level yeah you you own so far down the stack that our current techniques you know firmware aside right from the clipsing perspective that the attackers can still be very successful and you lack the visibility and control of your entire stack if you don't worry about it, the fact that every user has to access some device to access all of your applications in the operating system but that device can still be can still be compromised Exactly. And so I love that you say the word device, right? Because uh, that device is kind of, um, is is the nexus. I used to think that endpoint was the nexus security problem, and it still is. But the problem is we've been defining the endpoint as the operating system and above, mm. instead of a holistic actual device that has so much conversation between the, the software that's on the hardware, aka firmware, and the software that's above that extracted layer, right? So um, it's 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 the right word at the right time in an era of IoT and an era of APTs hitting all these VPN appliances. Uh, ransomware doing the same thing. China, Russia, Iran, all of them are using the same TTPs targeting this firmware level now because they're flying under the radar. <laughs> they love it. So, Jeff? so from Tyler, from a from a consumer standpoint, or if we're looking at this from a, a problem with inside of infra infrastructure or you know info security, how are are we able to address it at that low of a level? Like we have a 
a long-term war happening, right? Like this is a 100-year war, 1,000-year war with China and, you know, others. How do we address something where we have things like supply chains? Even as large corporations, we still have to purchase and rely on hardware, whether it be in the cloud on Azure or AWS, whether it's within our own infrastructure, networking gear, things protecting our perimeter. All of these have chips, components, and things that we're unable to evaluate at such a low level with the time and resources that we have available. So how do we start to address this kind of low-level uh, threat vector that we're failing at the basics? So how do we start to address some of the more complex issues uh, that are a real issue, especially from a, a an advanced adversary or a very determined adversary? Now, that's a great question. So if you can break that question into maybe like three strata, one would be the strategic answer, right? How do we do this as an industry or as a collective or as a society? Uh, and and the other one at the bottom of that strata would be the most technical layer. Like, how do you actually get deep visibility into components, firmware, subcomponents? That that crazy supply chain you just alluded to that's strewn about Asia. That you know there could be dozens and dozens and dozens of of software suppliers on one motherboard, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of hardware manufacturers that end up there. So it's a very complex problem, even just for one product let alone the billions of IoT devices and, and endpoints, right? So to your point, so strategic would be the one area and then the technical would be the lower area. And in the middle is, is basically what we're doing here today, which is a, a tremendous amount of energy and education needs to be brought to the industry for their awareness and to CISOs and to missions, like everything from DOD to hospitals need to understand first and foremost what is what are the the risks and impacts associated with this type of threat? Like what what is a what does a bad day look like? Uh, and and then how do I assess that risk? How do I even quantify it? Let alone qualify it. You know, qualitatively look at it and say what what is the nature of this beast? Right. So um, education in the middle, but then strategic on top, and then tactical in the bottom. Now from the top, you'll see actually there's just news today that uh, finally got announced that. Um, NIST put together a consortium of vendors like Dell and HP. Uh, we're, we are lucky enough to be as part of this consortium about, I think it's um, eight vendors um, and OEMs, uh, including a Seagate hard drive, right? So they're going to put together their best um, talent and technology as well and perspective on how to actually solve this problem macro industry level. What, what is a, a, you know, supply chain assurance uh, to use their term, mean for, for us as we go forward into this great unknown of a billion IoT devices. Um, and then so that's kind of strategically what needs to happen because that that's it's broken strategically. To answer your question, today there aren't very good ways to detect a supply chain attack until you end up with the system in your environment and even worse, until you have like a bad day associated with it, right? Mm. It's kind of an after-the-fact realization, oh, I've I have an issue. I have a really bad issue as well, right? Because the impacts associated with this kind of stuff are tremendous. Uh, and they are both short-term as well as long-term, like you alluded to with the 100,000-year uh, war. Um, the education part, here we are. It's, it's obvious. Um, at a technical level, of course, I'd put a plug-in for, for Eclipse and, and really for the founders, uh, Yuri and Alex that worked at Intel for so long uh, on understanding this trust problem and understanding this hardware level. And this goes back you know, 12, 15 plus years um, even though Eclipsium as a company is only 2017, these, you know, Yuri would be the founder of Chipsec. So Chipsec would be open source. You can use that yourself to go and hunt for types of vulnerabilities, uh, implants, backdoor supply chain vulnerabilities in your own environment, right? As, as a starter, um, it's not user friendly. It's not, you know, what Eclipsium is, or right? Eclipsium is a Chipsec and much, much more. But it, you know, this is the roots of this problem do go back at least a decade in terms of, um, Technical focus, and, and obviously Eclipse aren't the only ones that you, you look around, you could find Microsoft, Intel, everybody's working on this problem, trying to find a way to allow the operating system to trust the steel underneath. So we can do things like build AI stacks from the ground up where you have to have trust from layer one all the way up to abstraction layer. Uh, to so the highest you, abstraction layer, right? So. Do you see a lot of manufacturers kind of hopping on this? Uh, this proactive and uh, research-friendly bandwagon where we as researchers are able to look at some of this hardware without you know, getting some of the blowback or criticism. And we are able to, from our environment standpoint, be able to push back on manufacturers uh, in order to kind of gain uh, some of those levels of trust and see what they're trying to accomplish from their security standpoints. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a, probably the question of the hour in a lot of ways. So I just did a podcast with uh, one of my mentors, Malcolm Harkins, my, my, my dearest favorite mentor for, for a number of years. Uh, and the topic was research and whether or not a researcher can act freely and what, what those thresholds are for when you're doing something wrong, where, where should the government step in, et cetera. So without going too far down that rabbit hole, when it comes to like hardware and firmware, it's been a bumpy road, quite honestly, to get where we have are today with what I would call a decent structure for coordinated disclosure, um, non-arbitrary timelines that actually work for both the researcher as well as the OEM or manufacturer, as well as are, um, are fast enough to get ahead of the adversaries adopting these vulnerabilities when they're dropped. So, so you know, China would, uh, I think, um, was APT... Um, uh, 41 uh, took advantage of one of these VPN vulnerabilities a week after the vulnerability was dropped, right? Yeah, there's patches out for it, but operationally, uh, you know, organizations aren't going to always be able to patch their VPN devices, especially in the middle of a pandemic when those are mission critical and you can't even afford to reboot them half the time, right? So it's, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, but coordinated disclosure has gotten us f- further along than, than, than I think we think we are in a lot of ways. But at the same time, there's all sorts of fits and starts and all sorts of um, drama. <laughs> and there's all sorts of uh, uh, bad guys that are and gals that are excited about when, when a vulnerability drops because they do, in fact, operationalize those within weeks and days. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say it's, it's, um, it's an ongoing struggle. There's no quite silver bullet answer here. But if you take an example that I'm more familiar with, which is boot hole, which is, you know, a, a massive hole in secure boot on 90% of all computing, uh, you know, Windows on Expand, like it's, it's everywhere, right? Um, that vulnerability is was interesting and involved at least 18 vendors, I think, um, or maybe 12 vendors. Uh, it took like 100 people. It took number of days. And you've seen like Oracle come out and document how they've addressed that vulnerability. So there's the messaging and the education back to the industry about what coordinated disclosure should look like. So, and and what I think we've done better at, and I'll end with this, is we, we're doing better at not trying to point a finger to the other party to say that it's their fault that we have this problem. Um, I think we've kind of adopted a, like, we all have to win together, whether we're an OEM or a researcher. Uh, and we all have to realize, you know, my kind of hot button that we, we talked about earlier was um, how fast the adversary is adopting these things. So we have to do this all but in, in, in the most expedient method possible. I can't emphasize that enough. That's how we have to get better speed. And, and don't you think this is kind of a sea change? Because it seems like, like you, were, you were saying you were building computers back in 96. It seems like that, that we were moving to try to put as much abstraction between the hardware layers and the operating system layers as possible back in those days. And with sort of the penultimate accomplishment is something like VMware, where the, the hardware has been completely abstracted. And and then now, you know, all of a sudden it, it, it completely flips around and says, well, it's really an end-to-end problem. It's not just this, you know, isolate the hardware and forget about it because we don't want to have to deal with the fact that there's all these weird drivers and things and nothing works. Well... Well, so speaking of that, so the reason I was building gaming uh, rigs is because I was making like, I was spending like 700 bucks and I was making like 3000 to sell like super souped up, you know, water cooled stuff. Right. Yep. Um, and in the process of doing that, I learned how to hack in gaming as well, because either you're overclocking or you're actually hacking. And back then, to your point, you know, a lot of the code for a game, like an online game like Counter-Strike, for example, or Tenaris, a tank game, would be local to the to the device that the gamer's playing from. And so you you had access to it. You were admin on your own device. So why not modify those images or those, you know, the all the code itself, right? And, and create things like cheats. Well, attackers today, fast forward to now, they're taking advantage of the same um, firmware level attacks that 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 the bad guys are because they've realized that uh, systems are largely cloud-based, but there still needs to be a trust of the endpoint. And the assumption is that if you can trust the Windows aspect of this, that you're able to trust the operating system, therefore trust the player to not be a malicious player with a malicious device. But that's not the case once you go to that driver level that you just mentioned, and you open up a driver that Windows trusts because it's whitelisted and signed by you know a cert that Microsoft loves, uh, and then all of a sudden you're off and running, and you have access to that memory space where the game is running, and you can modify it, and you can cheat. So hackers are doing the same thing to attack everything from cloud infrastructures to, um, to uh, you know, containerized environments. So I just still have to trust that steel, and there's no good way to do that. So don't distrust the player, distrust the game? 
<laughs> T-shirt. <laughs> so, from from Eclipsium standpoint, what is some of the what's some of the technical aspects of what you're solving at the kind of hardware and firmware level? Like, how are you addressing these problems from a technical level? Why well, so? So I'm not Yuri and I'm not Alex, right? I didn't work at Intel at, at this level for a decade plus, right? And found a company like Eclipsium. So I'm not going to try to articulate exactly at the most technical layers, but you know, we are we're it's an agent-based technology, right? So it sits in Windows and it's able to use a driver to look at and query all the hardware to see what it has and what it is and what the versions are, uh, and able also to extract those binaries, those firmware images, for example, and run static like heuristic analysis against it there to discover both known knowns and unknown knowns in terms of backdoors, um, uh, vulnerabilities that can be used as backdoors, implants. Um, bad, badly corded things like uh, you know, like a firmware that does that shouldn't have so many write permissions, right? It's misconfigured as from a security standpoint, um, and and have so since there's tremendous insight in there from an expertise standpoint, they build that expertise and a lot of that what I loosely call tradecraft. I use that word carefully, but there's a there's an offensive side of the tradecraft and there's a defensive side, and the two are very much much like everything else in cyber interconnected very closely in terms of what tradecraft looks like from a defensive detection standpoint. Uh, and so we, we implement a lot of that tradecraft into our detection capabilities. Um, and then, you know, to, to scan, let's say a Cisco RV320 device that let's say Iran is using to hack in uh, to an organization, uh, you have to do that from our agent that's on an x86 box and scan across the network to a connected device. But then we'll do something that like a vulnerability scanner won't do, which is like pull that that image off of that device if we have creds for it, and then actually statically analyze that via the same methods and, and TT or tradecraft that we use to understand general firmware problems uh, as such. And so this gives us a lot of more depth. It's not just like, okay, it's telling me it's this version, and I think that version has a CV associated with it, therefore it's a high CVS score of 8.8. It's it's much deeper and much more what I would call robust and um uh, it, if you think about like zero trust architecture uh, or philosophy, even we are the we we check the checkers, right? So we are the trust but verify portion, the verification portion um, of understanding this whole space. Um, that doesn't really address your question quite at you know at a code level or implementation level, but um, that's that's the general approach is to have that agent to be able to pull down very specifics about everything on the whole motherboard, BMCs, um, peripherals. Um, um, SMI, UFAI, BIOS, all, all of these memory, right? So all of these things are things that we have really deep insights into. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually what more of what I was after anyway. And that goes, uh, that carries over into things like IoT, correct? It's not just enterprise level devices. It's, it is whatever device you are doing the analysis or inspecting based on the agents. Is that correct? Yeah, if it runs on x86 uh, and you know you can deploy anything to it like you would in an x86 environment of yours, uh, we can run the agent and do the thing. Um, and then, like I said, for those connected devices for which we don't have an agent that are, um, may maybe you don't want an agent running on your firewall or on your VPN appliance, your Citrix ADC, et cetera. Uh, so then that's when we use that connected, you know, we, we have a logical uh, be able to connect it, uh, query it, use admin credentials, pull the binary remotely from it, and then analyze it. So what do you think the next iteration of this, where is the, where is this going and how are you guys kind of influencing and advancing this from a strategic level? You've addressed some of those earlier, uh, but like what's the roadmap look like and kind of the, the end goal of what Eclipsium is trying to build out to the, to the community as a whole? It's, um, the, the goal is to get as, as good as you can get in terms of having a, uh, an end consumer, whether it's a corporation or an individual or whatever, actually be able to have raw and true insight into this, I'll just call it firmware or hardware space, right? That's, that's the goal. Now, now it, that's easier said than done because it's such a massive complex problem when you bring in things like IOTs or devices that you can install an agent for. Um, uh, th there's, there's a lot of complexity. So in order to, to get where we want to go, our strategy is to focus on those threats that are actually hitting in the wild that are of most impact to most of us in the West, for lack of better words. Um, and, and so that, you know, you'll see us do things like um, uh, zero log 
log on, right? So we'll detect that. If we have an agent on a box, we're going to detect that, right? Why? Because we have very particular customers that ask us for that exact feature. Why? Because that feature is used in conjunction with other vulnerabilities at the firmware level. And so when you want to, when you want to understand attack chain or root cause analysis uh, and want to get into um, the logistics of, of what an attacker could or might do in your environment, if you have an agent, you might as well let, leverage it to detect those threats that would cause you the most hurt, right? So, so that's that's the general strategy because we've got limited resources, as every uh, solution vendor does or, or organization does. So we have to focus on what we call the most important things first. Um, and so, building in detections, for example, for these uh, VPN appliances that APT forty one twenty eight thirty three thirty four. Uh, you know, China, Russia, Iran are are all hitting, and even even um, you know the, the woman that died in the hospital in Dusseldorf a few weeks ago, uh, you know, which was a big event. That that ransomware NetWalker also hit that Citrix ADC box that's publicly facing firmware on that box. So we'll build in the detection for that, right? Because these are these are attack surfaces that most organizations don't. I guess the right word is they don't anticipate them. So their playbooks don't, aren't ready for them. Their, their patching cadence is not top priority for them because they don't even have the visibility to know that they have a vulnerability that's a CVSS score of 10, <laughs> right? They don't even see it. Yeah, Scott, uh, so it, it begs it, the question, a question, how do we measure dwell time if we have our blinders on to a lot of these issues? And you and I talked about outpacing and outsmarting and the difference there and really being able to measure dwell time. And I think it really comes down to the problem we're trying to solve with this particular issue is how do we first measure dwell time and reduce it? Because the attacker's problem to flip it on them, right? That's maybe our problem on the blue team. Their problem is they wanna uh, persist for as long as possible. And I think that's what's driving them to those attacks. You articulate it much yeah. better than I can actually. No, that was <laughs> that's um, right on. Right on point. It's hard to, hard to add to that beyond uh, what I will call, I have very severe opinions, right? So I, I worked in instant response for years. I lived through WannaCry at a, at a global 10 uh, in a manufacturing context where WannaCry blew through IT as well as operational OT environments and brought down plant production, right? Uh, and, and living through that and the, you know, the 90 days and 180 days after that, if that, if that makes sense, you saw how organizations kind of reacted to that. And what they realized is when you do like root cause analysis on those really bad days, like not Petcha, WannaCry, or some of these ransomware uh, that are hitting very destructively, you realize that you actually had most of the visibility you thought you had, but you didn't have the visibility fast enough to actually matter to get ahead of the bad day, of right. the boom. For lack of a better use the DoD term, left a boom, right? Um, and so when it comes firmware level and you know you start thinking about like a dwell time there, it's very hard to measure because you don't even have a baseline. You don't even have a starting point, right? You don't even have a forensic start point that says they did this then and they've been in our environment for, for this long. It's very hard to do that. So until you get, you know, this kind of level of uh, visibility we we're talking about just a moment ago, um, once you have that, you can kind of look at dwell time. But um, the, the, the notion is, I, I'll say this from a Strategic standpoint, most organizations form their strategy based on the assumption that it's a matter of when, not if, and they need to be resilient. And my strong opinion is that strategy is often um, ill-informed Ill because you've taken that mantra and you've you've done your spend and your resources and your technology stack around it. And you're focused so much on resilience, you haven't focused on the thing that's right in front of you that matters most. And that's because that thing doesn't have a name other than the word time. Right. And and time is the adversary or to us. And every IR I ever did, it was always only ever a matter of the adversary outpacing us, not outsmarting us. And I don't think this firmware space is any different. If people call it sophisticated, long-term, they think about supply chain and there's chips and, and circuits and everybody's like, oh my God, so, no, it's not sophisticated. It's just the shortest, uh, what I would call, not only short in terms of length of time, but like it's the, it's the most logical way to accomplish objectives such as long-term espionage, mm -hmm. uh, tracking individuals across the planet that are enemy of state, uh, clamping down on your citizens if you're an uh, authoritarian state, of doing all sorts of badness without getting caught ever. And that's why if you look at Mosaic Regressor and what Hackett team did in 2015, for example, they had a Vector EDK there for a reason because they knew the chances of getting caught and their own dwell time 
would be indefinite using a technology like that for the customers that were, you know, actors for higher kind of uh, business model. Um, so, you know, I, I could talk around this all day long. I get more fired up the more I talk about it. So I'll, I'll pause there and see if that makes sense. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your viewpoint on resiliency because how can you claim that you are resilient and working towards resilience if you're not going to threat model at the very fundamental core and go, we need to really think about this threat and try and understand yes. all of the threats, this firmware attacks being one of those threats. If you're someone ignoring that or lumping it in a category that it is so improbable that that would ever happen, how can you Bingo. claim resiliency? Now I see your I, point. I, I, yeah. I love that because um, it, when it comes to like due diligence and understanding mission risk, which you know I, I can't afford but to think in mission risk because I did 17 years supporting DOD missions, right? So mission risk is different than business risk. But when it comes to some understanding mission risk, you literally can't quantify it unless you do a full threat analysis and ask yourself all the iterations of how I can get hurt. Because in fact, your adversary will try all of those doors over time, right? And so mission risk is exposed to all of these doors. So the, the, the concept of likelihood to me is I have a very controversial view on even likelihood. When you look at risk equals impact and likelihood, right? That, that, that component of likelihood, when I was uh, responsible for DOD, all the Genser systems and assessing that security residual risk, I assigned a likelihood of who cares. I looked at the impact it could bring to the mission and the warfighter, as well as what the attack surface was, which is a, a component of likelihood. But if you told me there's a CVSS score that's factoring in whether or not there's a known exploit in the wild for this, mm. I, I told you to get out of the office because that, <laughs> that mindset, that, that um, security theater we play with ourselves as we kind of obtuse around risk, which is the hardest thing in the world to do anyway, even in a room of the best risk analysts in the world, the NSA with more of the equations written on the whiteboard, you won't find two that agree. Even when you have boots on ground, raw intelligence to drive the risk equations, right? So for us in the real world, most consumers back to mom and pop shops or even large enterprises, you don't have that real boots on ground intelligence. And when you think you do, you have success bias. And when you think you, you should factor in whether or not a, an exploit is known or in the wild or not, you're kidding yourself. So focus on what can hurt you the most, focus on the assets that matter the most, and focus on, again, on time and cadence and patching those things and make those your success criteria and your metrics for getting better over time. Um, I, I get so fired up over this because I've seen I've seen all the bad days happen in mission risk. I've seen you know when when you chain together two cat twos and one cat three and bring down an entire mission. I've seen these kind of things happen, and the lessons learned are pretty pretty particular, uh, and they don't jive with what we hear day in and day out in in what I would call vendor space industry. There, there's a there's a misalignment, a fundamental misalignment over how to solve for this problem and get ahead of the adversary. Do you, do you think that is a a problem from an infosec standpoint? Do you think that's a problem on the offensive and or infosec teams because they're not able to convey that business risk to the C-level executives? Is that our responsibility? Uh, or is our inability to articulate that and the executive's inability to listen uh, playing into that more than we're able to control? Phenomenal question. And even, even in the DOD, that's, that is often the rub. That's like, there's, there's only so much you can elevate in the language that, that a decision maker um, can understand and make an informed decision from. Um, uh, there's, there's so many different disciplines within like Team Blue. Uh, and one of those disciplines would be uh, the research community, right? So kind of doubling back on that, just to use it, one example that's kind of top of mind. If you think about what research is supposed to do, it's supposed to provide some form of intelligence by which you can make some kind of risk decision. But if you look at what how researchers often roll out their product, if you will, and articulate everything from a malware campaign, let's say, they'll throw all the ICs in the end and they'll break apart the malware and they'll reverse it and they'll put a pretty good amount of detail into the report, but they'll fail at some of the more basic things that, that I think our research community could do better to inform a decision maker like even playing your own devil's advocate, providing um, opposite opinions to, um, to, to, to those that, you're, that are your own, yourself, like in your own appendix, right? Um, and, and laying out variables. So, you know, we think it's this, but if this were to be true, then it must be that instead, right? Rather than just claiming 
something like, and you know, I, I don't mind speaking about this because it's a good example and it's top of mind and it has to do with mosaic regressor and um, even attribution. So if, if you're a company and you think that your threat actor profile um, is uh, worrisome, it, you know, because because of this war with China, right? You could trade war, manufacturing, et cetera. And you're worried about China and you read a report that attributes Mosaic report, uh, Regressor, the vulnerability, uh, or sorry, the, 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 uh, the, the, the UFI bootkit to the Chinese adversary, you're going to elevate that, that, that campaign potentially. And the thing is, the attribution we have on that is, 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 and they didn't, the researcher said it was moderate. They didn't claim it was absolutely China. But when you read the press, it's like China, APT 41, the five guys that just got indicted that go back to 2007, been hacking all the things. These are the guys that were, you know, blah, 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 mosaic regressor the last, you know, two years, 2017 through 29 campaign. And that's a huge lump just because you have a shared infrastructure IP address and just because you see some uh, some language attribution around Korean, uh, Korean and Chinese characters inside the code. Um, you know, if you look at, um, what was it, the, the, the Marble, uh, you know, Vault 7's WikiLeaks dump of, of CIA um, tools, one of those is called um, something Marble. And it's a framework for doing false flagging and false language, in particular around languages that you in, in, input, sorry, you inject into your code base to throw a false flag to falsely attribute. So I don't know if that's happening with the Mosaic regressor campaign. It may be or maybe it's not, but that's the thing. You need, as a researcher, you need to really articulate and frame out what the iterations of possibility are, especially when it gets to attribution. Now, I diverged a little bit from your question about like, did we do good at communicating even red versus blue? Um, no, we, we totally suck at it as, as an industry, as practitioners. Uh, and I'll even throw myself in that bucket after 20 years of, I'd be, I can look at Admiral and brief him in the eye, you know, look him in the eyes and brief him uh, or her. And the thing is like, when, when you're doing that, you, you can't be full of BS, right? You got to shoot straight. Even then, uh, under that extreme, uh, pressure cooker of, of stress, uh, you find yourself, I'll find myself making mistakes in terms of, uh, of overstating something or understating another thing. So it's it's really it's really a big challenge. I don't think there's a silver so, bullet there. I don't know how we get better there. It's, it's not like AI is gonna help us really. Um, maybe on the data visualization front, which can be a helpful helpful tool when you're using data visualization to uh, to to define um, a threat campaign, for example. But Scott, I, yeah. what, I, what I hear you saying that actually really concerns me about the state of security today is that we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's most important. And at certain times, I've kind of been of the opinion that we should just fix stuff. And we get too hung up on, well, you know, we may face this threat actor, and that's what this threat actor is doing, and we should patch that vulnerability because there's an exploit out there. And, and really, when it comes down to it and you're in the fight, none of that stuff matters, right? Once an attacker has gained some foothold in our environment, Everything's off the table. We can't predict as human beings what that attacker might do and cause us to have that boom event, like you said. And we need to factor yeah, so, in all, all the bad things that could happen. When WannaCry hit, it was it was interesting because the environment it hit also uh, had seed cleaner in it a couple of weeks prior. And, and, um, and, and there was just a lot going on, right? It was just a lot of fog of war. I, I, I wish I could describe some of the details. It was, you know, the, the, the typical war room, everybody's sweating, it smells like BO, um, you know, for, for weeks on end, no sleep kind of, of warfare with the adversary. And one of the things that, you know, you have to cross in crisis management early on with communication with legal and external counsel and insurance, and everybody else, FBI, you have to cross the bridge and say, look, I'm not gonna care about attribution even if I think it, I, I well, back then we thought maybe this is North Korea because the payloads are crappy North Korean ransomware payload. It's North Korea. Well, no, it wasn't North Korea. Or it was North Korea. Who cares? Because when you have double pulsar bouncing around your enterprise and your operational environment with creating an SMB storm, the eternal blue that's bringing down all of your plant production, it doesn't matter if it's Russia or China or North Korea. It absolutely doesn't. And, and the other thing that doesn't that people need to not assume, not just attribution, but also motive. If you have read, write, execute on every box, right? That's a problem from, in an, from every, every threat motive potential, every impact potential. It's not just ransom or criminal 
it's not just maybe even destructive. It could absolutely and often does include also longer term backdoor espionage components or ways to get back in later or sell that access later. You, you, you know, you think you went through a ransom or destructive event. You went through all the events because you had your your Active Directory down. You had local local admin accounts that are just popped left and right. You had data being siphoned off. You don't even know what data is. You have firewall rules being modified. You have one word queries from your big fix environment looking for whatever, a gift card, a, a portal uh, that you never even looked for or looked at because you thought it was a North Korean ransomware campaign to try to avoid, evade sanctions, right? So you have to assume all iterations um a, a, a buddy and, and somebody i very much respect in the industry vitaly kermes for example came out with a report a little while ago um uh highlighting how uh Crickbot, which is you know criminal enterprise a piece of malware often associated with emotet on the mouse spam side and then riot on the on the delivery of, of ransomware or conti re- recently right that Crickbot component was is using also the c2 that's shared by north lazarus operations and so that was the first time we tied the fact that North Korea, uh, you know, this discovery by Vitaly tied North Korea to Eastern European criminal, uh, you know, malware campaign. Um, and, and that's very profound because now you can't assume the TTPs you think you know from North Korea anymore. Mm. And, and you can't assume what's for sale and what's not. So um, making assumptions about attribution in terms of who's behind it or saying things like it's China or it's Iran, it's, it's, it's not a country a lot of times. It's actors in those countries that are also for hire for other countries. Like there's Iranian actors that would support um, initial access to, to Russian actors carrying out Russian campaigns and motives. But we might falsely attribute that to Iran because the infrastructure's there. Or some other IOC that was associated with Stuxnet or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's kind of, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer or the answers are, right? But I think what we have kind of come down to, which I think is a refreshing uh, kind of approach, is that... You don't know what you're going to get yourself into when you get into a fight or if you played baseball and you studied the pitcher and then you're like, they very rarely, you know, throw curveballs and then they like literally throw a curveball at you. Or if you're preparing for a sparring match or a fight and you're like, this person usually leads with the right hook and they come out and they sweep the leg to use the, you know, popular analogy of the TV show. Right. And you just weren't expecting that. Right. That was my I, I would lose fight every time because if the person I was sparring just did something completely unexpected. And I'm like, how do I get that random and do things that are unexpected, right? But when we look at this firmware problem, I think it falls in that category of a lot of times people don't expect that attack, right? And we have to be ready for it. And I I don't think my answer, you know, my previous statement was patch everything, right? But we have to anticipate and be ready for the the unexpected and, and threat model those things. So, so I'm going to put a plug in for CISA, CISA. You know, it wasn't so long ago that DHS was trying their hand at, at helping inform cybersecurity, and honestly, it was awful. Uh, the intelligence report was coming out was was bad. Um, it, no need to comment further. CISA has changed all of that. Like, if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed to everything they put out absolutely on a daily basis, you are missing insane amounts of timely value that's sourced from hundreds of the best practitioners and researchers in the industry. Source through trust groups, source through relationships, source through law enforcement, international coordination with other other law enforcement internationally. The stuff that they're putting out now is very well informed and very accurate and very actionable in a fast enough matter in a timely enough matter that matters. My opinion of that, all those kind of products coming out from government, even FBI, uh, five years ago, is completely different from what it is today. So um, don't don't eschew that source of intelligence because it's really well articulated. The other thing about it is you can walk an NSA or CISA level guidance or alert into your boardroom and say, guys, we have a problem with our remote workforces during this pandemic. We have VPN devices that we don't even know if they're vulnerable or being used right now by Russians or Chinese or Iranian actors or criminal actors. We don't even know what our exposure is, but these are the top ones we need to fix right now or replace or tech refresh or whatever it is. And, and those two, so the, the, the products themselves are very actionable and well-informed. So I, I can't put a big enough plug in for those folks. And, you know, um, of course I like to work with them and help them all I can, but these days they're helping me more than I'm helping them. And that's a sign that um, intelligence sharing has actually matured to, to what I would call a high impact state and, and they're carrying it through. So yeah, get better at doing what matters, but rely on, on good sources to know what to, what to triage first. And absolutely the firmware layer 
is uh, is is quintessentially important right now. It's it's where all the attackers are going. It's not about living off the land like we think it was just yesterday. It was just yesterday. It was all about living off the land, right? But Microsoft uh, EDR vendors uh, have done a really really good job at squeezing that dwell time down to uh, minutes or even hours. You know, right? So so they're going there out of necessity. They're not going there because it's it's fun or cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Is, is that where we're at today? That basically enough organizations have pushed to that level where now attackers are, are, are focusing on some of the other weaknesses? Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, I used to laugh when I give talks and I'd talk about like, you know, what does it mean to be to do hunting, proactive hunting? And I just look at the phrase proactive hunting. Well, when you're doing that, you're not a hunter at all. You're quite the prey. Mm. It's almost like you're in a building and John Wick just broke into the bottom floor and he's on his way up to the top floor where you are. And you're trying to stop him. And you think because he's in your environment and you're hunting him, you're not. He's hunting you 100%, right? So um, <laughs> uh, we've gotten to this stage now from a blue perspective where where there's amount of time we can, um, pressure we can apply to those actors. They can still live off the land. They can still do a lot of nasty things with than Windows and Windows will always have because Microsoft's SDLC is still not perfect. It never will because the code base is massive and complex, right? Complexity itself will keep them from ever having a perfect operating system that doesn't have a CVSS 10 vulnerability du jour in effect, right? Right now, it's zero login. Tomorrow, it's going to be something else, right? What, what I'm saying is attackers can move through living off the land only so far before they will get caught. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I have indefinite persistence? This this malware economy we're talking about, where things are for sale, like access to RDP servers or vulnerable VMC device, uh, VPN devices, those services are, are there indefinitely. That's a 24-7 bazaar. So people are going in there all the time and buying those accesses. So you want to have persistence no matter what your objective is in an attacker because it's worth something. Scott, I think it's it's interesting. We talk about the monolith that Microsoft has created and how difficult that is to defend. When we come down to the firmware level, conceivably, in any one given device, we have a lot less lines of code to defend, and we probably could make it really, really resilient, right? Never 100%. We could get much closer in that one firmware device. But part of the problem that I've always identified with firmware-based attacks and hardware is it's ubiquitous. There is thousands and thousands of different devices, all with varying degrees of code bases that we have to defend. So it's the same problem, just in a very different perspective. Yeah, it's a, a very diverse universe. Um, then now there are some skeptics that say things like, like a common myth would be, uh, well, these firmware techs, you need to have local access to pull those off. So that's low likelihood, move along. But mm -hmm. Once you hear something like that and you don't blame the person, you take a step back and you ask yourself, why was that their perception? And then ultimately you're looking in the mirror and you're blaming yourself because you didn't educate and you you didn't realize it yourself for the last 20 years, right? So, so we're all in this together, right? There's no blame in about perceptions, but at the same time, um, you know, the 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 attacker landscape. It used to be that almost all hardware was unique, and you had to have like a very targeted approach, like Stuxnet, and going back whatever mm -hmm. 10 years, and saying, I'm going to target this this component with this cert to get to that driver to get to that physical thing. And that took maybe six months or 18 years or 18 months to, to architect, right? But nowadays with UEFI, it, the last word on EI, well, the first letter is universal. The last one is interface. The whole point of that, if you re read about it, is that it's designed to be interchangeable and interface with all the things, right? right. It's supposed to be a, an interface. It's, 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 it's common across multiple vendors, multiple hardware platforms, multiple OEMs. Uh, it, it 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 it's it's always there for supply chain to to, to plug into, for lack of better words, in, in layman's terms. So that's made the attack space much more homogeneous at the firm layer than we think of it as, because where we left off before UFI was you know BIOS and boot kits, and those right. are actually pretty popular. Before, well, yeah, but here uh, here right. we go sacrificing security for usability because long gone are the days where I had to take a floppy disk from a specific manufacturer and boot <laughs> that up and update my BIOS. And there That's was it. there was really you know, two problems there, right? Every motherboard had a different kind of BIOS and I had to go find the right one. And the second problem was it wasn't connected to the network. I had to go get it somewhere, build it on a floppy and boot it up before I updated it. That was maybe more secure 
at the time, although attackers, of course, as we all know, figured out how to get malicious software on those floppy disks to corrupt the BIOS in the very early days, but in it of itself was more secure. To make things more usable, we made them connected and more universal, and, and that is part of the downfall of security in, in these firmware devices. In, in, in the meantime, in just the last couple of years, you have attackers that will send 500, half a yeah, half a freaking million devices to to victims that are like thumb drives that you plug into your laptop as an undoing victim at your house or in your company that will spin up a process that mines cryptocurrency, right? That's a half a million people that would, that were willing to plug in that device. And that's just one campaign, right? So here we are working from home thinking um, uh, we have a VPN connection. We're using Duo two-factor authentication. Good job, everybody. But the hardware is still right mm -hmm. there and we still have end users that will plug anything in. Uh, Russians will mail teddy bears to you along with a with a USB key and do all the things, right? There's um, Droverub malware, APT28, the you know, Russian GRU. That malware also loads kernel extensions pre-boot for the same reason, right? The, these these campaigns are all doing this the same kind of, of attack vector because it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's easier to do that than it is to set up a spear phishing campaign. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's, it's cheaper true. too. Yep, I buy and, and you can target everybody because the social media. We're all working from home. We all have our families here. All of it. It's just it's just gone. We we've definitely jumped the shark in terms of being able to attack any individual on Earth easily. Scott, this has been a, a very engaging and interesting discussion. We just have uh, five questions left for you. Are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Let's do it. <laughs> Three words to describe yourself. Big, dumb musician. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Serial killer. I have no idea. That's my answer. <laughs> if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Solving for Drexia. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? I don't play that game. It's popular in Europe. There's a Russian version too. <laughs> that was a no hesitation answer there. It was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Scott, choose two one, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive dead fiction or otherwise. Uh two celebrities to be my parents. Um Oh gee whiz. Uh who, who's the guy? Fonzie. Fonzie. Uh, Henry Winkler. Henry, Henry Winkler. Winkler. I just watched and, that episode um, of Friends where the doctor loved Fonz. Yes, yes. Uh, I have an autograph from him. He says, be cool, stay in school. And it's from 1982 when I was in Korea. Oh, my dad got it as a Marine, so that's why. Uh, oh, that's and then awesome. let's see, for, for, for well, we're going same sex? or Let's see. So, doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't yeah, matter. It's up to you. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's um, 2020. You know, anything goes. Probably Angelina Jolie. Just most oh, most popular yeah. answer for mom. Yeah. Most popular yes. answer, yeah. Yeah. It's the boobs. It gets very awkward. Very, <laughs> very yes. Well, and she, she has guns and I love all that stuff. So. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is also true. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of Paul Security Weekly. Thank you for having me. This is this is great. You guys ask the best questions. And, uh, you know, I'll cross it off as a bucket list. You guys are probably the oldest podcast I'm aware of. I don't know who else, who else has been around longer. Do you? I uh, can't think of it's somebody. a it's a small crowd. It's a small crowd. Thank you yeah. very well, much, well, Scott. And it, and it depends if you're talking a security podcast or just podcast in general. Um, wow. I can think of one that's been around longer that we have that's not security podcast though. Yeah, yeah. quite a few. Of I that, mean, yeah. I, I was listening to you guys probably in as far back as like 2008, trying to get my boss at Northrop Grumman to listen to your podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. Our listeners can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Eclipsium to learn more about their fabulous solutions for dealing with the firmware threat. And with that, we'll take a short break and come back to discuss the security news, including hot, steamy, moist cybersecurity certifications and more.